0: Can go get a fucking chainsaw enema.
1: Radio-Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio-Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the great Canadian North himself, the Peter. Come on in.
0: Yes, I watched Ghoulies last night. F*** off. Is that really a Canadian thing, though? No, not really. It's and we're not Canadian. talking Ghoulies, so... No, no, we're not, but uh, anybody should uh get get yourselves into Wasp and Ghoulies uh, right away if you want to have a, a better quality of living, in my opinion.
1: Well, Cecil won't be joining us because, oh, he put family over us, Peter. He's I, doing man? stuff with
0: his family tonight.
1: Ugh... Oh. Again, God, th- this boy has no
0: priorities, doesn't he? seems to be living life in a in a very morally morally good kind of way and uh makes me hate him for sure. We're just kidding. Cecil will be back next week.
1: If you guys want to help out the show, go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. It really helps out, and we also have a Patreon, which really helps out as well. We kind of need to keep the lights on and the internet running.
0: Dear God, I'm, I'm broke. Josh is broke. Cecil's broke. Just, just a buck. A buck a month. A buck a month is all we ask. F***ing Onision is making $2,000 a month and he's a psychopath. Okay? We're only slightly psychopathic and we're trying to, we're trying to support people. I know, I know Josh has a family or a girlfriend. I do. Cecil's got kids. A dollar, a dollar a month is all we ask. If
1: everyone who listened to this show donated $1 a month, I could upgrade all of my computer software. I could get the movies that they want us to get. I could actually pay some of my back bills. I could maybe get my cell phone turned back on. If everyone donated $1, but we're, that's not what we're talking about. This isn't <laughs> e So what we're going to talk about tonight, and this is something we can do way down the line as well for other filmmakers. I want to talk about the beginning and the end. I want to look at certain filmmakers the way they started and the way they ended. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're done making movies because a few of these, they're still working. It's just
0: where they are currently.
1: Right, at the time we're recording this in 2019. Here's the criteria I want to put up there. I want to disclude short films and television work. I want to look at film works. So in a lot of these cases, the filmmakers we're going to be discussing maybe did short films or music
0: videos before they did... Before they did their film work. Like you've got Michael Bay who did music videos first. You've, you've even got somebody like a James Van Bever who did a couple of, did a Pantera video, did like a 20 minute short here, a 30 minute short there. So those I'm guessing.
1: I don't want to count shorts. I don't want to count music videos. I don't want to count oh. television. Because like, like later tonight, one of the people we'll be discussing is Joe Dante. He hasn't made a movie in years, but he's still prolific in television. That, yes. It's not really the same thing, you know? When, when you're directing Legends of Tomorrow episode, versus directing real movies, not quite the same
0: thing. What's the last thing he made? Was it, um I'm guessing it was like Small Soldiers? The last thing he made was the... Very unseen film,
1: Burying the X in 2014. That that was the last movie. Otherwise, he's done episodes of Witches of East End, Legends of Tomorrow, MacGyver, Salem, Hawaii 5-0. I don't really consider that the same thing, but
0: it's TV kind of like guest director kind of work.
1: Well, since we're talking Joe Dante, we'll, we'll just go to Joe Dante. With that, he started as an editor with Roger Corman, but his first directing work was 1976's Hollywood Boulevard. Now, later on, one of the people we're going to be talking about, I'm going to discount because of a, when it's a clip movie that's using clips from other movies, but Hollywood Boulevard, I think, is different. All of the original stuff outweighs the clips that they ended up using and i think hollywood boulevard which he co-directed with alan arkish is quite a good debut you get a lot of joe dante style in this even though you know at the time you didn't know that was his style and it's it's kind of a nice satire on hollywood from
0: roger corman i really like hollywood boulevard uh which one is hollywood boulevard i'm trying to re- is that the one with the guy that's like Trying to pitch this sort of like uh fantasy sci-fi type thing, and they and they don't want it, but then they keep the real, and they don't they don't pay him, or is that a different thing? Hollywood Bula-
1: Hollywood Boulevard is where a fresh young face comes to Hollywood, and she's immediately put gets, into exploitation uh, films and gets
0: gets uh <laughs> gets a train running her. Oh, that's a different thing. That's probably that's probably more Debbie Does Dallas. I really like Joe Dante. I really oh, do. Oh, I love I love him but, too. I, I man. Think he, I, He's got a hell of a style, and uh, I obviously don't know what movie we're talking about, but I do love Joe Dante. I have not seen, I have not seen Hollywood Boulevard. I, oh. I got it confused with something else.
1: Burying the Axe in 2014 was not a good movie to go out on.
0: Barely got released.
1: It, it more or less escaped to VOD two years after it was made, and for a name like Joe Dante. And a film nobody wants. The, honestly, the biggest problem I had with burying the X was Tales from the Crypt episode, drug out to ninety minutes, and that's oh, what I boy. think its biggest problem is: is there's not enough here to make a full movie out of. This is oh, a this oh. is a Tales from the Dark Side episode, a Tales from the Crypt episode that they said this can be a feature. No, it can't. Not really.
0: It probably shouldn't be. Yeah.
1: But then there's something like George Romero. Now, obviously, his career's over because he has passed on. When you come out strong with Night of the Living Dead, I consider one of the best films ever made. I've drugged my girlfriend three times to see this in the theater since we've been together. I love Night of the Living Dead. This is one of the greatest films of all time. And then to go out on Survival of the Dead.
0: Oh.
2: (laughs) I mean, you can't
0: really, um... Blame him too much. I mean, here's the thing. He started with zombie movies and he continued with zombie movies. Like, that's sort of what he would, what he would go on to continue making. I mean, here and there there would be, there'd be other stuff, but really he was the zombie guy. So he would experiment with other stuff. He would experiment with variations of the zombie stuff. I personally thought Land of the Dead was pretty great. Right. That was the one with uh, the zombies start to think more and they could pick up guns and stuff. Am I correct on Land of the Dead? Is that what that one was? Yes, I liked
1: Land of the Dead. That I one was good. Diary was okay. It had some good ideas. It didn't work as a complete film, as a narrative. Diary had there were some good ideas. ideas.
0: Yes, it did. But then... um, what was the last one? The Dock of the Dead or? Survival of the Dead survival is, survival,
1: yes. Survival of the Dead is pure
0: garbage. It so was horrible. It was garbage as far as, um, the type of film it was. Like it's more of a kind of, that one was the sort of found footage one, wasn't it? Or was that diary was the found footage one. Survival was the we're
1: being kitschy and it, it has the whole thing with they're not dead and we can save them and oh, and in no. the whole religious debate oh it was so that i was pissed off at how bad survival was oh it, yeah that the, one was crap the effects were awful the acting was terrible it was full of and i'm putting in quotes humor that did not work the social satire missed by a f- baseball field mile nothing in survival worked and to have Romero go out on that garbage is not the way a director of his caliber should have gone out
0: well no but he was also experimenting with different types of of subgenres I can I can kind of forgive Romero at least in that respect because for one he was like ancient he was really old by that point and he was he's always been kind of experimenting with different subgenres and genres regardless of what movie he was making so i i think he tried to do something different it didn't it didn't stick to the dartboard unfortunately um i don't blame him too much even though it it was crap survival of the dead is uh it's a trash trash movie even even the found footage one he made before that was was a lot better and had a lot more potential and a lot of a lot of better ideas this one this one just felt like he missed the mark entirely and sure it's it's his last movie, but we still have a, a fantastic legacy with him.
1: But then, look at something like David Cronenberg. No, this one, I, I don't know what to really count as his first, because leaving aside what I said earlier about shorts, he still had Stereo Title 3B of a CAEE Educational Mosaic in 1969, but it's only a little over an hour long, so I don't know if I'd ca- call that a feature, but it's definitely not a short. Same thing with 1970s Crimes of the Future, but then all he does is short films until 1975 shivers so do we want to consider shivers which was a theatrical release his first film or stereo title 3b of a caee educational mosaic being his first film
0: i i don't know which one i would pick here because stereo I does uh, count i'd go with the theatrical one
1: because stereo and crimes of the future they are films but they're not what we would traditionally think of as a film, whereas Shivers and then Rabid, those are actual film films, at least in the traditional way we would look at it.
0: And they're in the traditional way of how... Uh... Cronenberg would sort of continue. He sort of started with more kind of drive-in exploitation movies, which kept uh, a lot of the a lot of the body horror that he would continue with. So I would go with Shivers. I would say that's his sort of official debut, particularly because it was also theatrical.
1: Well, the the funny thing about Shivers is because of the way now I don't I don't know if the Canadian film laws are still like this, but the way it was back in the '70s, he basically got these with public money. It, it was ba- basically <laughs> Your version of PBS gave him the money, and I know that's dumbing it down. It's more complicated than that. For a movie like Shivers and then Rabid to be made with public money, that did not sit well with Canadian film critics and Canadian taxpayers. There was a huge push against Shivers when it was in theaters. My tax dollars paid for this filth to be on the screen. No, I don't know if it's, I I don't know if, I don't know if Canada, you're in Canada. I don't know if it still is like that. No,
0: no, it's not. It's, it's, it's different. I mean, since then, I think it was 1980 something, Canada became, uh, Hollywood North. Uh, At at this point, it was still sort of, uh, independent. If you wanted to make a movie, you had to get certain funding from different people. So it's, it's different. But one thing that hasn't changed is, uh, you look at Justin Trudeau Canada is absolutely a country of pussies. At that time, absolutely. But now it's it's different. Now it's like you know America is using it to to double for for Detroit and L A and New York and whatnot. But at that time, it was it was sort of different, and it was obviously very clearly um, left leaning to the point of cringe, where anything that was violent or anything that was sexual would be looked at by the government as uh, too violent and, and pushing the edge too much. But obviously there was an audience, and obviously there were Canadians that wanted this kind of movie. Obviously, because, you know, we had guys like Cronenberg that wanted to make these kind of movies. But our government at the time was a, a bunch of little little Nancy babies. And that's not to say, God, don't construe me as right-wing because I'm not trying to push a right-wing narrative. I'm just saying that we were a bunch of mollycoddle little little hippie sissies at the time. But we obviously had guys like Cronenberg that had an artistic integrity and wanted to make cool movies. It's just at the time, the government was sh-
1: now, here's my thing about Cronenberg's early stuff to his later stuff. So he would end with at least so his early stuff: Shivers, Rabid, Fast Company, The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome. Up so up until 1983, these all are, and I don't mean this in a negative way, very Canadian films. They well, yeah, feel Canadian,
0: Montreal or Toronto, very local. Canadian kind of movies for sure. And then you go up into his
1: career and you're like, Eastern Promises, History of Violence, Exit Extends, Crash, Cosmopolis, and then finally Map to the Stars. These are very Los Angeles movies. These are very
0: Hollywood films. Cronenberg, his well, career- Well in, in the sense that they were shot in the States, sure, but I feel like I feel like history of violence is still very Cronenberg in in terms of the way it feels. It still feels like something he would have made in the the 70s or the 80s. It just it was shot in what like Georgia, I don't know, somewhere in the states for sure. But it still felt like one of his uh older movies.
1: I, I disagree. I, I think, and when I say Los Angeles, I don't just mean oh, shot in the states. I mean they feel like studio movies where his Mm. early stuff even though you know Videodrome is by Universal Scanners is I think it was Paramount it might have been Warner Brothers I don't remember off the top of my head they don't feel like studio films they feel like independent movies but then do but then Cosmopolis Eastern Promises History of Violence as Extends Crash etc these feel like Hollywood studio films That's my thing. He really changed. And Map to the Stars, while it does go back to sort of an indie feel, it doesn't go back to a Canadian indie feel. It feels like something that he wanted to do as a Hollywood movie but didn't have the budget for. I was really disappointed in Map to the Stars with how it was shot. The reason it was shot like this is it's technically... In the same universe as the old nineteen ninety-three ABC Oliver Stone miniseries Wild Palms. Huh. It's set in the same continuity. And Wild Palms was shot mainly by Catherine Bigelow, but there are other directors in nineteen ninety-three with this very sort of overlit. Over bright. It took place in the future of, I think, you know, 2007. You know, this sort of overly happy future to offset the dystopian things that were happening in it. And Map to the Stars is written by the same guy, Bruce Wagner, who wrote, who wrote Wild Poems. That's how they are implicitly connected. They do take place in the same universe through references and background characters, but Map to the Stars being shot like that that's not Cronenberg's style. So I, I get why Map to the Stars is shot the way it is, but good God does it not feel Cronenberg at all. So I think more than almost anyone else, his career trajectory, you look at his first film and his last film, you'd never guess these were by the same person.
0: Gone were the days when he would be shooting on the streets of uh, Ottawa and Montreal where it felt... uh very like very urban uh, very kind of um, middle it felt stuff. almost, it felt almost gorilla
1: in some in a way it,
0: it did yeah if you look at uh, I mean I I went to Ottawa a few months back and I swear I was um, I swear I was walking some of the streets of the locations of some of his earlier movies I know it's listed as a, as a Toronto and Montreal. But I swear he must have shot in some neighborhoods in Ottawa. It just looked like that. It had that kind of that that working class uh, Canadian inner city kind of vibe to it, for sure. And I feel like that's that's something that added to the aesthetic of his movies, particularly with uh, movies like Scanners, Videodrome, and The Fly. Re- really had that kind of kind of vibe to it. And I, I guess I guess gone are the days of of that Cronenberg.
1: Well, then let's talk about another director who I just mentioned a moment ago, Oliver Stone. This guy, I think more than any other, wanted to kick his exploitation film past aside once he started getting big movies. You look at, again, I'm leaving shorts out, so last year in Vietnam and Man Man of Martinique, don't count. You look at his first film, Seizure, and then you look at his last film, Snowden. These were not directed by the same man. They just weren't. And in a weird way, as much as I love Oliver Stone... I love The Doors. I think JFK is fantastic. Natural Born Killers is probably his best movie. Any Given Sunday is great. He has a very distinct style, and while you can't see that in 1974's Seizure, God, I love this movie. Seizure, more than any other movie that we're probably going to talk about tonight, feels like a perfect mid-1980s, Saturday night at 4 a.m. on a UHF channel kind of movie, if that makes sense.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. He definitely, like a lot of filmmakers, had his roots in um, more sort of drive-in style stuff. I don't know if I would agree that Snowden doesn't really feel like him. I mean, that, that feels like more of his uh, more mainstream kind of movies. It feels more like a, like a JFK kind of thing where he's no, see, I,
1: I i disagree with that because you you look at the doors jfk and natural born killers specifically he has a very and i i mean this in a good way very film school style of shooting and editing those movies feel like experimental films that just happen to have millions and millions of dollars behind them for the doors
0: for sure i don't know about jfk though jfk,
2: JFK and natural be...
1: born killers are the same way with all the different changing film stocks and the rapid fire editing and all that they feel like experimental student films i don't know
0: i thought i thought snowden was uh it was a little more clinical i guess but it's still snowden it still still felt like a like an oliver stone film
1: see i disagree with that I, i think that and w and world trade center those just feel like average hollywood films i don't get oliver stone out of those movies
0: oh those two were very very bland for sure you know like wall street
1: money never sleeps doesn't feel like Oliver Stone. Wall Street felt like Oliver Stone in 87, you know? Oh, for sure, for sure. But then go all the way back to Seizure. You can't really see any of his style come through. But you tell me, okay, on a critical level, it's not a good movie. Tell me you don't absolutely love the movie, though.
0: I do, absolutely, 100%. I think that's a that's a great movie and such a showcase of, of what the uh, man would be to come.
1: Then what about something like John Carpenter? Now, here we have a lot of don't-counts. Because he did a lot of short films, including the one that won him an Oscar back in the 60s before he directed. And then lately, since 2010, all he's done is shoot music videos. So we're not counting any of that. So we're counting Dark Star, basically, versus The Ward. So Dark Star, I love this movie. Okay, part of it's Dan O'Bannon's script, which is quite witty. But this movie looks way more expensive than it was i know a lot of people will say assault on precinct 13 is carpenter's first and they i always see this in quotes real movie fuck you dark star is a (laughs) real movie and it's john carpenter's first movie i love precinct 13 i i think that is an amazing drive-in film but dark star is funny it's got some heart to it it's got some witty dialogue and i really like how he directed it really no money i mean they're literally using vacuum cleaner
0: parts for the space suits and yeah, you can tell great. but It It adds to
1: the f***ing charm, doesn't it?
0: It does. It still has that, like, John Carpenter aesthetic to it. Like, it still very much feels like one of his movies, and if you think about it, that's kind of been his charm to begin with, is somebody who can take something that is very shoestring, almost no budget, but can make it feel very Hollywood, very big. I mean, you, you look at movies like Halloween, you look at movies like Escape from New York, or even Dark Star, they feel so much bigger than they actually are, and I feel like that's what uh, carpenters draw has always been is somebody who can take a very minuscule budget but make you think that you're watching a much bigger movie and dark star definitely has that
1: well the only thing i'll take away from dark star when it comes to carpenter and his his style wasn't quite there yet because what do you think of when you think of john carpenter you think of widescreen you think of panavision lenses and yes. you think and you think of for some reason and i don't mean this in a jj Abrams sort of way he always had lens flares in his stuff which always when i used to see a movie with lens flares in it i was like did john carpenter shoot this because of the panavision wide. lenses
0: well for sure because of the the very very wide panavision kind of screen very very panoramic kind of shots pick up lens flares a lot more than uh any, any other sort of shot would he would shoot in super super wide screen so you'd, you'd get a lot of those kind of effects so he was uh kind of one of the I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but one of the uh, original lens flare sort of dudes. And it, it definitely made his, uh it made his movies feel, feel bigger in a way. Like you'd see like, Light effects and stuff that you wouldn't see in a lot of other stuff. The way he was shooting, you'd see a lot of those sort of techniques that would um, be deliberately used by a lot of uh, uh, modern filmmakers. Okay, Dark Star, it doesn't have that. But then again, you go all the way to
1: 2010's The Ward, that doesn't either. Now, The Ward, I, I know, was what he called it. It was a mercenary film you know he didn't this is one of the few times where he's he's directing something he didn't write he didn't produce the ward i think it just came across his lap and
0: he went what the hell and they you just, can i think you whoever, can kind of tell i think whoever wanted to put it together wanted to be like okay well i'd like to have john carpenter's name on this so i'll get him to direct and, and carpenter himself probably wanted the work so he decided but it definitely doesn't really feel like a john carpenter film
1: I almost want to discount that, but he did direct it. I almost want to say Ghosts of Mars is his last movie, but really The Ward is. And Ghosts of Mars would not be a terrible go-out, because it's a ba- it's a bad movie, but it's a John Carpenter movie through and through. It's Ghost just a bad Mars, John Carpenter uh, movie.
0: I feel like Ghosts of Mars would have been great if it was just another escape movie instead of getting... uh ice cube or ice T. it was ice cube yeah if if uh if that had just been kurt russell on a on a mars prison plantation or whatever it was that one would have been great i think it would have that would have been fantastic if it was like escape from mars or or something like that or if it was ghosts of mars and suddenly it was a a surprise snake plissken movie would have been great but what it what we ended up getting was uh it's fun but i would consider it one of his worst movies
1: without a doubt and then we're going to talk now james cameron i'm I'm, again we're leaving shorts off
2: oh oh ooh! cracking my
1: knuckles right now here we go we're leaving shorts off so xenogenesis doesn't count now he may say his first real movie is the terminator we all know his first movie was piranha 2 the spawning which yes Okay, now James Cameron is another guy who has a very distinct style. It's a little harder to put a a stamp on than someone like John Carpenter, but Cameron has a very distinct style. I don't care if he says, oh, I was fired after only two weeks, blah, blah. No, this movie feels like a goddamn James Cameron movie.
0: The the way it looks, the way it's shot, the fact that- The camera movement, I don't
1: care. I don't care what he says. Piranha Two has his style all over it. Now, like I oh, said, there's lot, there's sweet. lots of, there's lots of differing stories. You know, Lance Henriksen, who's in the bulk of the movie, says at least in all of Lance's stuff, Cameron shot everything. Oh, so Cameron's sure. "I was fired after only two weeks" is I think that he's just trying to distance himself because he doesn't like the movie. Screw you, Piranha Two. And then you go to. I know we got more Avatar movies coming out. Avatar, man. Uh, Wow. Avatar, it doesn't feel like James Cameron at all. None. It feels like bland,
0: anime-inspired Hollywood nonsense. It's not even anime-inspired. It's like, it's like Fern Gully-inspired. Fern Gully mixed with, uh, Dances with Wolves and ripping off some of his stuff from aliens like
1: and he completely ripped off the marvel epics comic time spirits go well, yeah, look up the, like, go I mean, look up exactly. time spirits how is this man still working when all he does is plagiarize but what all right, right fine
0: say about james cameron and i know a lot of people are going to be pissed off about this or they're going to consider it controversial or whatever i i think james cameron is a high key hack I, I feel like he has a decent vision as far as the way a movie should look, and he has uh, the right idea for aesthetics. But then you think about the amount of people that are uh – that culminate together to make a movie work. And then you think, did James Cameron maybe get lucky? Because when you think back to a movie like Terminator, what do you remember? Do you remember the way the movie looks? Or do you remember Arnold Schwarzenegger? Do you remember the effects? Of course you do. You remember Stan Winston Studios. You remember movies like Aliens. But do you think of it as a James Cameron movie? Or do you go the sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien? When you when you think back to James Cameron, do you really remember Titanic? From what I remember, most people f***ing hated Titanic. Most people didn't give a shit about Titanic. You think about Avatar, a lot of people thought it was just drab. A lot of people just, like, oh, well, a lot of CG blue people. Like, nobody really gives a s***. Most people that are actual connoisseurs of film think Avatar is a joke. And and you really think back to to James Cameron's career. I personally think he peaked with True Lies. And and that movie doesn't really even have much to do with him, more so to do with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger having really great chemistry together and really great on-screen charisma. What I see... James Cameron has is somebody who has been a vehicle for other truly talented people to get noticed. Stan Winston Studios for the Terminator effects, be it Arnold Schwarzenegger who went on to do much bigger, better things. And other actors that have worked with him, say say Michael Bean, obviously who was in the first Terminator as Kyle Reese. James Cameron himself is a guy who worked a lot with guys like Roger Corman. He was a matte painter for John Carpenter at some point. I feel like He got lucky with a really good team of people. He's not really much better than somebody who was making movies alongside him at that time, like a John Carpenter, who, in my opinion, is a much more talented filmmaker who deserved much bigger accolades than he got and has done a lot of his the stuff that he's known for. He's done himself as far as the directing, the cinematography, even music. Whereas John, whereas James Cameron is a guy who will be like, oh, I directed this, so I did everything. And he'll crap on genres. He'll take a, a movie like Piranha 3D and say, oh, well, 3D movies are just gimmicky trash from the 70s. It's for stupid horror movies like Friday the 13th Part 3. Yet he'll continuously re-release Titanic, Terminator 2 Judgment Day in 3D. He'll make the Terminator 2 3D ride. He'll make Avatar, which is a f***ing 3D movie. And he's got four other Avatar movies coming out that will also be in 3D. So just gimmicky bullshit after gimmicky bullshit. Yet anytime something does well, oh, we got to stop this trend of of comic book movies. Yet he's highly tied. He's tied heavily to the latest Terminator movie that's coming out. It's like Fucking speak for yourself, dude, when it comes to things that should die off. You're working on a f***ing Terminator movie.
1: We got Piranha 2, The Spawning, and and The Terminator. Now, The Terminator obviously has more money than a Roger Corman film would. But you tell me, stylistically, with what Corman was putting out at that time, with Battle Beyond the Stars, Galaxy of Terror, and all that. Yeah, you tell me Terminator could not have fit into the Roger Corman release schedule right there, other than the fact that it obviously has more money than an average Roger Corman movie.
0: It absolutely would have. It has the same, like, uh... Gel, neon kind of lighting, uh, a lot of blue during the night scenes, a lot of, a lot of red, a lot of, a lot of neon kind of shots that you would see in a lot of early Corman films at that time, uh, between 1980 and 84, maybe even like 78. Terminator is a grand scale Roger Corman film that in my opinion got lucky with all of the things involved if they had gone with Lance Henriksen as the cyborg or even like O.J. Simpson was a was an early running for it would have been a forgotten film but the the lightning in the bottle with the effects team that was involved Arnold Schwarzenegger being involved Linda Hamilton Michael Bean all these people that came together that made this movie what it is that made this people what pe- that that made this movie be what people remember it being is why it's iconic it's not and i will i will stress this until the day I die it is not iconic because of james cameron it's iconic because of stan winston and arnold schwarzenegger
1: but okay so you look at piranha 2 you look at terminator and then you look at avatar you look at titanic or even true lies this is another one like with Oliver Stone where, man, you just – if you didn't know they were by the same guy, you'd never guess these were by the same director, would you? Oh,
0: absolutely. True Lies is very clinical, very clinical Hollywood filmmaking. Same with Titanic. Avatar is barely even a movie. I mean, it's, it's an animated film. It might as well be. It's its like 90% CGI, and, and a lot of it is um, unnecessary CGI. I mean, blue – it's blue people. This could have been done with makeup and, and a little bit of animatronics, but he decided to make a near three-hour movie about f***ing lanky blue people. Like, this is not the—it's uh, it, proof that, that, that James Cameron— never really had a sense of originality. It was always what he's taking from whatever whatever trends we're seeing in, in contemporary Hollywood or even with indie filmmaking. Like you, you mentioned Terminator with how much of a Roger Corman aesthetic it has, and it absolutely does. It even kind of feels a little bit John Carpenterish. It has a bit of- Or a, maybe Harlan Ellison-ish? Yes, a, lo- a lot of bit of Harlan Ellison as far as the uh, story points are concerned, and he can deny that as much as he wants. He almost lost a f***ing lawsuit over that shit. He had The only
1: reason he didn't lose is they settled out of
0: court. They settled out of court, and that's the only reason why, at the end of the movie, uh, inspired by the works of Harlan Ellison is in there, because Harlan called him up over the phone and said, Hey, saw your movie, why didn't you f***ing credit me? And he uh, he started sweating like that goddamn Jordan Peele meme, where he's f***ing just sweating bullets. And he had to go back and re-edit that sh** that, that was not in the original screener because Harlan Ellison was a reviewer at the time. He was critiquing films and noticed that there were so many similarities between Terminator and his Outer Limits episode that he literally had to call Cameron up because also he saw a Starlog interview where Cameron literally said, I watched a bunch of Outer Limits episodes. Say what you will about James Cameron being this Fucking cinematic genius. Most of the people I'm sure that are listening to the show are gonna say that stuff. He's not that great. I think he got lucky with his crew. With his crew of people that he would work with. He got lucky to get to know a guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger who, for most people that are gonna work with that guy, you're gonna do well. You know, people know about John McTiernan and Shane Black and a lot of other people because of Arnold Schwarzenegger. They, they don't, they didn't do well Because of James Cameron. Most people have done well by doing business with the Schwarzy. James Cameron can suck a cock. I don't give a shit about the movie purists. They're like, oh, but he's a genius. He's this and that. He wouldn't be shit without the works of Harlan Ellison, without Stan Winston Studios, and without Arnold Schwarzenegger. James Cameron can go get a fucking chainsaw enema.
1: Well, we've mentioned Roger Corman. Let's look at Roger Corman now, most people know most people know the name Roger Corman, but outside of maybe one or two people or one or two films, can you name all of you know could most people name all of the fifty six films Corman's directed? Yes, he's produced over four hundred. Oh yeah, but can you name all of the ones he's directed because he started directing? with just a Western. It was just a regular Western called Five Guns West in 1955. And then his final directing work, where he came out of retirement for it after almost 20 years, was Roger Corman's Frankenstein Unbound in 1990. I gotta say, now I love Roger Corman as a producer and all this. Man, uh, just like with a couple of these others, you'd never guess Five Guns West and Frankenstein Unbound were were directed by the same person because for one thing, Frankenstein Unbound... Is really good. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. It I, and I, I'm not trying to be insulting to Roger Corman, but high levels of quality are not one of his trademarks, right? Oh no, no,
0: his his levels of quality are usually uh, get it cheap and get it done quick. And I, I feel like he's he's quite underrated as a director. Did he produce or direct Death Race 2000? He produced it. Paul Bartel directed oh, okay, Death so Race it 2000. Um, but as far as movies he's directed, as far as Frankenstein Unbound, I feel like when the guy tries, he's he's actually a good filmmaker, and I think it has a lot to do with the amount of movies he's produced. I mean, he's been on a lot of a lot of film sets. He's been around a lot of directors. He's given inspiration to a lot of directors that would go on to be uh, megastars who would probably never mention him by name. James Cameron, you need to mention Roger Corman in some interview about one of these f***ing Avatar movies or something because... You wouldn't be anything without him. Roger Corman, I feel like, is a guy that a lot of filmmakers and a lot of producers, a lot of directors, writers, actors, whatever, owe so much credit to because he's a guy with uh – such a vision and every now and then, you know, he makes cheap stuff, he makes good stuff, but the fact is he, he continuously produced things. Cinema, he had a love for the craft of what he was doing regardless of if, if some of it was a bit low quality. He obviously loved working on stuff and he had a, he had a mind about it. Like Roger Corman is a guy who I will always, uh, respect quite highly as, as far as this kind of stuff goes.
1: But look at Frankenstein Unbound. Not only, and I do mean this in the sort of insulting way I'm saying it, a lot of his movies, they don't feel like movies. They feel, you know, they're shot on 16 millimeter, they're shot super cheap. Frankenstein Unbound feels like it could have been, maybe with a little bit more money, a big theatrical film. It had a great cast, great effects, great makeup. Frankenstein Unbound feels like a real movie. And when most people think of Roger Corman, that's not what they think. Of.
2: Well, I
0: mean, maybe he was just a, a little more inspired than usual working on that movie. Like, you, you never really know what what Roger Corman you're going to get with uh, what movie he's putting out.
1: Well, then what about one of his contemporaries and someone he's oft compared to, Charles Band? With Charles Band, it's a little more all over the place, because... Charles Band didn't necessarily have a style as a director, I'm saying. As a producer, he had a pretty good way of making most of the Empire stuff all feel like they're from Empire. All the Full Moon stuff feel like they're from Full Moon. Right. But when he got behind the camera, it was sort of all over the place. He he didn't have a specific directing style. I don't know what I would count as the first Charles Band-directed film. There is Last Foxtrot in Burbank. It's a shot-for-shot spoof of Last Tango in Paris. Edited by John Carpenter, by the way. But I I don't consider, like, a spoof a real movie. So I'm going to go with, like, 1976's Crash. And you look at that... And then, again, I, I know he's made, quote, other movies since Evil Bong 777, but I'm sorry. Puppet Master, Blitz, Blitzkrieg Massacre, Deadly Dolls, Deepest Cuts, Deathhead's Heads, Brain Drain, Vampire Slaughter, Eaten Alive, and Bunker of Blood, Chapter 6, Zombie Lost Night Flesh. Those are compilation <laughs> films of other Full Moon movies where, yes, he directed the wraparound segments. I don't consider that him directing a film, but you look at Crash versus Evil Bong 777. Again, I'm hard-pressed to find that it's the same guy, you
0: know? Oh, for sure. He's very much in the the same vein of, of Roger Corman as it's kind of, um what you get is what you get with him. It depends on what, what Charles Band uh, you're getting with uh which given product, but I feel like with Charles Band, it always kind of, it, it feels like Empire. It feels like that sort of that sort of aesthetic. Like you're, you're kind of getting what you get. Sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's it's not so much. But I feel like it's always Charles Band.
1: The the weird thing about this one is I think Band is the exact opposite of Roger Corman in this respect. <laughs> Roger Corman's early stuff was directed like crap, and then he got better and better and better and better until 1990. and then Unbound.
0: Where's Charles Band
1: Charles Band started where. with Crash, Parasite, Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin. Trancers, Crash and Burn, Dr. Mordred, and then did into the evil bongs and stuff. And so he kept getting worse. Did so it's the exact the, opposite. Uh,
0: did he direct Eliminators? No, he did not direct Eliminators. That wasn't him? Okay, that was just a producer, credit. But, I mean, isn't it kind of funny how these two
1: are oft-mentioned together and yet their career trajectories as directors is the exact opposite? <laughs> because, <laughs> b- because, no, I'm serious. Look at this. Roger Corman starts off, everything is shot on film he's trying to be relatively serious but he's not that great at it and he gets better and better and better but then he starts shooting on video but his directing gets better charles band all of his early stuff is shot on film and then quite good and then it as it goes along he starts shooting on video and it gets worse and worse and worse these two
0: are like a weird yin yang man it is true. Um, I don't know what it is with Charles Band. Like, I don't know if he got lazy or if he just wants his product to continue. But he's definitely been uh, cutting corners in, in recent time, for sure.
1: Okay, I don't know this for a fact, but I know it for uh in quotes, fact. I have some people who have worked with him recently who've said that basically Full Moon is on its last legs. So he's
0: doing everything he can just to put out product last legs even when it started i mean they was um Was the first Ghoulies Full Moon?
1: No, the first Ghoulies was Empire, and Ghoulies 2 was also Empire, and then... But Charles Charles Mann
0: was was Empire, wasn't he? That was his sort of thing? Yes, yeah, that
1: was Charles... The, The actual technical first Full Moon movie was Crash and Burn, but it was also Meridian. It all, you know, because depends on whether you're talking which one was made first or released first. Really, Full Moon was great when it started. He had tons of money rolling in. You know, Empire had just gone out of business. He'd that gone bankrupt. That was
0: like, uh, movies like Doll Man and, and stuff like that, right?
1: Doll Man, yes, Dr. Yes, Moore's exactly. in, stuff Doll like Man that. is great. He made so much money because he had a distribution deal with Paramount almost right from the beginning of Full Moon, and it's the movies you wouldn't think made him rich. Pre-Hysteria is his biggest money maker of all time. You know the kids' Jurassic Park. Right. They sold over a million cassettes of that. Holy sh! For a full moon movie, that's an astronomical number. Well, yeah, now, if it's you something had a like hell you know of a
0: deal uh, with like the video stores and stuff. You would see full moon stuff, full moon tapes, all over the video stores, regardless of where you would go, whether it be Blockbuster, Rogers Video. You know, uh, regardless, even if it's like a little mom and pop video shop in the '90s and the '80s, you would see full moon videos all over the place. So he had a great deal regard uh, regarding that. and A lot of people would be renting that stuff. With some with some titles, that would be, as you said, that would be selling by the by the millions.
1: Like I said, he and Corman are all. Always conflated, but I think their career trajectories are almost the exact opposite of one another, yet also parallel to one another. If that makes any sense.
0: Well, yeah, one one kind of got better on a technical level, and one sort of stayed as uh, as more of a businessman. And I I feel like that's what that's what Charles Band kind of needs to do, I guess, to stay as as a profitable businessman. He he needs to sort of stick to his guns as far as what he feels will work. For Full Moon Like I'm even I'm even hearing That he wants to Bring back uh, Subspecies Yeah the, the, He is actually Directing the Now it, it's called A sequel
1: But he's also Calling it a Soft reboot oh, okay the, the, They're doing that Now we're off topic But who cares <laughs> I don't I don't know How I feel About Deadly 10 I have some people I very much like Who I know In the real world Who are doing Some of these But you tell me That Deadly 10 After I explain What this is To the audience Does not feel like A last last. ditch Hail Mary, Please Save Us move.
2: (laughs) It
0: kind of does.
1: They are making ten movies this year, which, you know, since the early days of Full Moon, they've not done. They're going to make ten movies in the next year. I think, like, four of them are sequels and one's not a real sequel, but I'll get into that in a sec. All the movies will be live-streamed the making of. You will be able to watch them filming every one of these movies as sort of a viral event. You tell me that doesn't just reek of desperation. He frames it, and remember, Charles, if you hear this, I love your work. I love talking to you. I've loved the times we've talked on the phone. I just can't get behind this. This this is a desperation move to me. You know, if this doesn't work, we're going out of business kind of move.
0: It is and it isn't. I mean, that's, that's kind of smart. That's a smart idea because we are in the streaming age. I mean, obviously you've got, you got Joe Bob coming back doing the last, last drive-in stream for, for Shudder. So you've got someone like Charles Band coming back doing a stream of, of how he makes his movies. Like, Sure, it can seem like a bit of a last-ditch effort sort of thing, and it probably is, but it's a smart marketing move. Like, it's probably something that people will want to watch, so it's – at the same time of being a bit desperate, it's – also a pretty good idea
1: see I I'm, I'm torn on this but we'll have to see how it turns out and then and and then there's even the the cheat in there of sorority babes and the slam ball ballorama 2 from David Dakota and brink Stevens and I'm going but there already was a sequel sorority <laughs> babes in the in the in the in the dance-a-thon of death is the official sequel already yes it was shot on video by Todd sheets so are you just kind of going oh yeah nobody's ever heard of that so this is the real sorority you David Dakota <laughs> you are such a
2: fucking hack
0: <laughs> well that's probably what it is like people only really know about the uh, slime ball bolorama one so they're they're doing like an official official sequel to that one so it's I kind of see what they're doing but it's uh it's definitely hacky so the way I look at it is you've got a lot of these directors
1: and like I said we can do tons of these later on with other directors where you you look at sort of the alpha and the omega of their career and in a lot of cases these directors they don't they're not the same person whether that's a good thing or a bad thing that's debatable that they were at the start of their careers most of these directors I liked their earlier stuff better that's maybe my personal take or maybe they just evolved into a quote better director but i didn't like their stuff like john carpenter as he went more mainstream i didn't like his stuff as much it's, it's his stuff like, like we were talking earlier it's it stopped feeling john carpenter after a while james cameron george romero oliver stone that is that kind of thing is with them too they stopped feeling feeling like themselves as they went along. Yeah, Maybe that's, maybe that's the cyclical nature of this whole thing, or maybe it's just like, Ooh, I don't like it when they're mainstream and
0: I'm just being an elitist snob. Either is possible. I think it's just because certain directors, the more money you give to them, it seems like they go overboard. Like, I feel like Carpenter, the more money he has, the worse his movies are. Escape from New York is a lot better than Escape from L.A., even though L.A. has a a shitload more of a budget. I feel like there was nobody on set to tell John, hey, maybe you shouldn't have Snake Plissken surf on a tsunami. Maybe you shouldn't do that. And he was, and he just did it anyway. And whereas Escape from New York is a great uh, minimalist, very very neon lit, moody action film, and then and you've got, and this is going to be a weird comparison to make, one of the most consistent directors as far as uh, quality of work goes, at least in terms of the stuff he cares about, a very consistent director, even though I I uh, don't like his Transformers stuff, is is Michael Bay. You look at Michael Bay's films and it always feels like Michael Bay, even if it's one of his weaker movies, like one of the crappy Revenge of the Fallen Transformers films or an excellent feature like Pain and Gain, which he clearly gave a, a lot of shit about as far as that goes. like that's a great movie. It, that still feels very much like a movie from the the 90 the later mid 90s that he would make like the rock. It even feels a lot like the the music videos you would make there there are directors that stick to their guns and still make a, a lot of the stuff that you you recognize yet some of them you give them a budget give them too big of a budget like guys like Carpenter. Uh, you you give them a multi-million dollar budget and they end up making something like Escape from New York or Ghosts of Mars. Yet you have somebody who's consistent like Michael Bay. So I feel like you just never know. You you never know whether you're going to get a director like Michael Bay or if you're going to get somebody like James Cameron who, or John Carpenter, who the bigger budget, the, the bigger budget that they get, the less of themselves they are, if that makes sense.
1: Where can people find the p Tair up in Canada begging for money and
0: sucking dick on the street corner? You can find me sucking dick, begging for money on the street corner, and sleeping off my hangover on Twitter, at Cinematica, on YouTube, The Cinematicus. On Facebook, The Cinematicus, on 1201beyond.com, with this show and many other fine products and shows and merchandise, buy some of our shirts, buy some of my shirts, it gets me money, it gets Josh money, it gets anybody money who has merchandise there, Patreon at Zinematica, where I am also begging, just begging desperately, give me cash so I don't have to put as many penises in my mouth. Thank you.
1: And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Remember, there's a Patreon. There's the Adam and Eve. So, guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold.
2: You play